And that is where the light of the infinite enters into our story. And the question is, how do you grapple honestly with the truth? I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. Lesson 5. The Path of Emet. Emet is where the light of the infinite enters our story. The Torah's heroic journey began with Tov, that gate on our quest for the goodness of creation, for a world perfectly reflected with the will of its maker. And we pass through that gate by learning to see that Tov is there in all creation, just not yet. Once you do, you're on the path of Avodah. And before you lies a choice, you can work because we're all slaves to certain realities, or you can be of service. Choosing to cultivate the divine good with your life efforts. And if you travel that path of Avodah with discipline and focus, you might be blessed to uncover something in yourself or in the world that really matters. Something so important that it calls you to take a stand, to be an ivri, to have a will that this good at least must come to be. And if you give yourself over to that goodwill with misirut, going beyond, growing beyond your limited self in devotion, you might just hit the threshold of heroism. That inflection point between the ordinary and the extraordinary, setting free a potential energy beyond all expectation. It's misirut that lifts the horizon of the possible. And in so doing, it exposes the infinite or as much much of it as we can see with our limited human capacity. And out there, beyond the horizon of the possible, is where the truth lies. Now, emet and truth are terms each far too rich in their own language to expect we're going to get a perfect mapping. So I'm going to avoid some abstract discussion of truth. Let's just say emet is both that larger reality exposed by our misirut within which we exist, and it's also the way in which we embrace it. It involves both true knowledge of the world around us and a true faith that that infinite wholeness can never actually be known, only actively embraced. And so on the hero's journey, when misirut lifts the horizon of the possible, exposing greater forces deeper realities, more comprehensive meaning that's actually driving my story, our story, the story, then I can face the emet as I've never known it, and I might just be transformed. My mom always told me, careful, truth is a three-lettered word. Now, really, what I mean is that the letters of emet are aleph, mem, ta. Those are the first, middle, and last letters of the alphabet, of the Hebrew alphabet. It starts with Aleph, which means also the number one. It's the one all good. It's the truth of the unity. Right? Before knowledge, before consciousness, before experience, this is truth before otherness. The divine perspective on truth, which by definition, of course, can't be known. Mem is all the phases of truth that come afterward, that flow from the very nature of existence. Because no matter how you believe we came to be here, here we are, each of us, 
with our own window of consciousness on the world. And whether you think that we're spontaneously generated by the universe or specifically mandated by a divine being, truth's infinite unity will fragment into the number of faces that look at it. It's basically infinite in its facets. Our sages like to speak of the 70 faces of Torah. And beyond the beautiful image, like a gem with its many facets, this teaches us something very important about the truth in Torah. It's a divine revelation, an absolute communication given knowingly to subjective listeners. It's an encompassing truth, which by definition is beyond what any individual mind can grasp, and therefore requires for its articulation in any wholeness, multiple and even competing perspectives. In their search for understanding truth, the sages also spoke of Nun Shari Bina, the 50 gates of understanding with which the world was created. And they say how no one, not even Moshe Rabbeinu, our dear teacher Moses, passed through them all. True knowledge of creation is an endless quest from the beginning to the end, and that's represented by the mem, the middle point of the alphabet, and the middle letter of emet, aleph mem, and then taf. This is the end, because no matter how abstract or theoretical we can get, everything comes to a close. It can be an interim understanding. Working models of the truth are very important. It could be the end of my life, a society, existence itself devoted to the pursuit of truth. Because while Mem says that truth is a process, Top reminds us that everything ends. And furthermore, it points out to us that it's really at the end where truth resides. You don't know what a story is about until it's over. For instance, if I ask most educated people at the turn of the 20th century, what's the story of Jewish kingship about? Well, they'll give me their knowledge and the story of its rise and fall, failure, disappearance... They might add some moral lessons gleaned from the prophets, maybe a hazy messianic vision. But no matter how they understood it, the Jewish state born half a century later requires changing the story because it's not over yet. So Emet begins in that Aleph of infinite unity. It contains the mem of an unceasing process of engagement, but its truest expression is holistic And that happens at the end, when all the pieces are in play, when the whole story has been told. Taf, by the way, is also the first letter of Tiferet. It's a Hebrew word meaning beauty, glory, majesty. And Tiferet expresses a very special aspect of truth. It's the quality of integration. It's that face of truth which emerges when all the pieces fit together. Tiferet's the beauty at the end of a life lived truly, knowledge, understanding, and experience woven into a thriving whole, which is plain for all to see. Tiferet's the majesty expressed when a group or society achieves real synergy, becoming more than the sum of its parts, their wholeness expressing a greater truth without demanding that the pieces lose their true nature. Tiferet's the truth and glory of creation considered in the entirety of its unfolding, from initial unity to the all-embracing infinite union of the pieces that comes at the end. And it's the face of truth, by the way, which our sages meant when they said, Chotmo 
God's seal is truth, right? The seal, of course, you put on only once the letter is written. The Tav at the end of Emet tells us that the truth really only comes at the end of the story. But Emet means there's an awful lot to learn along the way. The first appearance of Emet in the text of the Torah actually comes in a story we've already touched along our heroic journey. It's that of Eliezer, the servant of Abraham. I hope you remembered him. Eved Ne'enlan, faithful servant, given over entirely to mission and master, sent to find a wife for the son of his master, for Yitzchak. And after he indeed finds Rivka just, waiting there by the well as he requested, he gives up the following prayer of thanks. He says, Blessed is the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who did not forsake loving kindness or truth from my master. And here we see in the very first usage that Emmet finds expression in relationship. God is true to Abraham. This tells us, by the way, if we're seeking for truth, then we know the feeling of being true in relationship. Now, Eliezer actually retells his experience to Rivka's family only a handful of verses later. And there we get another aspect of truth exposed. He says, well, you know, and I, I bow down and I bless the Lord, Lord God of my master, Abraham Asher, Hinchani B'derech Emet, who led me along the way of truth. Derech HaEmet. Because now Emet is a path. And not just in that abstract sense that we discussed with the men, the middle letter, this constant building of better understanding, deepening of our grasp of something really too large to know in its entirety. That's true. But in this sense, Emet as a path is a way in the world that when followed offers an encounter with truth. A path punctuated by true experience, which not only bespeaks Emet, but actually makes the world more true. This world-embodied aspect of Emmet, as we might call it, can help us explain an evocative but far from clear verse in Psalms. It's in chapter 85. You should look at verses 11 and 12 there. You can see it on the source sheet, as always. It says, Emmet me'eretz titzmach betzedek mishamayim nishkaf, right? That the truth will sprout from the earth and righteousness will look down from the heaven. Now, we need to put righteousness to the side for right now and stay focused, Tzedek will get its own exploration as one of the paths of Jewish heroism. But I do want to note that it's righteousness and not truth, which is coming from the divine perspective, looking down from heaven. Truth sprouts up from the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, the sages tell a wild story in explanation. The creation of humanity, you should know, was not without controversy. In fact, we could say it caused an existential crisis before existence itself was even complete. I mean, the announcement split the angels into factions. They're lined up against each other, shouting one or the other, let him do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. Now, even the divine qualities themselves were divided. Righteousness stood up and said, let humanity be created. They're going to perform many acts of righteousness. Tzedek, right? Peace said, what? No way. These people are full of discord. Do you know the kind of wars they'll fight? And Hesed stepped in and said, yeah, yeah, do it. They're going to fill the world with acts of loving kindness. And finally, truth came forward and said, you can't create humanity. They're all full of lies. Ooh, that hurts. And apparently, it crossed a line 
because God took truth and hurled it to the earth. Well, now the angels were really upset. I mean, it was bad enough that humanity was under consideration for creation, but the very debate over the topic had so lowered a divine quality. Master of the universe, they cried out. Why are you demeaning your very seal? Remember, the seal of God is truth. It belongs with us here in heaven. Total breakdown. Pandemonium, right? And what happens? Well, two things. Having been thrown from heaven, truth now sprouts up from the earth. And while the angels were kicking up such a fuss in their debate, God went ahead and created humanity right behind their back. Now, there's a lot to be considered here. Again, I encourage you, go to the website, check out the source sheet, and learn the Midrash on your own. But for present purposes, understand this. Emet, as truth, is an organic quality, not a philosophical one. Philosophical truths find their perfection in abstraction, right? Philosophy is about absolute principles abstract systems that stand above reality as live. Now, ideally, they call us to something higher, but philosophical truths are never perfectly realized in life as lived. Philosophical truth finds perfection in abstraction. But the Torah's approach to truth, emet, is organic. It doesn't stand above reality. It grows out of it. And the perfection of emet is found, therefore, through embodied expression, not abstraction. It's found in the beauty of Tiferet, of a life truly lived, of a society true to its mission, of a world that expresses and embodies the truth of its creator through the harmony of its creations. So, we know that Emet is found in relationship. Like Eliezer said, Blessed is the Lord, who has not forsaken truth to my master, right? We know that it's encountered along the path of truth where we can encounter experiences that bespeak truth. And we know that Emet merges from a life as lived in truth. It's an organic expression that makes the world more true through its very embodiment. And of course, like all organic processes, Emet is a bit messy. The prophet Micha says, Titen emet liyakov. Now, in a literal sense, that means you give truth to Jacob. And from there on out, and really further back, Yaakov is seen to be the embodiment of emet in Torah. Now, I've got to admit that if I were going to choose a biblical persona to be the archetype of truth, I'm not so sure Yaakov would have been my first choice. His story starts all right. I mean, he's first described as Ishtam, right? The embodiment of the sort of wholeheartedness, Tmimut, to which his grandfather Abraham had been called at the moment of the covenant. Remember God said, Tamim, go before me and be Tamim, wholehearted. But in context, this Tam might just mean a little bit naive, mild-mannered, simpleton. Either way, Yaakov's relationship to truth seems to go downhill rather quickly from there. Yaakov, of course, is born as a twin, entering the world, clutching the heel of his brother Esau, his Akev, and so they called him Yaakov, at least in the first iteration of his naming story. And his whole life 
is bound up with the struggle of having another half. The first story we actually hear about Yaakov is how he leverages his brother's hunger and exhaustion to secure his own claim on being the firstborn. Now, you may have come or been taught to look down on Aesop, the crude hunter, as a fool for his willingness to trade his birthright for a bowl of lentils. But truth is, the very fact that Jacob offered him the deal in the first place doesn't seem so savory. But of course, the real parting of ways between Yaakov and the truth comes with the story of the blessing. Yitzchak, their father, felt his time approaching. I mean, old and blind with age he, as he was, he knew the time had come to hand off the blessing that he himself had received from his father, Avraham. This is no small gift, by the by. We're speaking about the seal of the covenant, the promise of inheriting the land, the very capacity to bring further blessing into the world. And Yitzhak had determined that Esau was the man for the job. Why he felt so is an important discussion for another time. For now, Yitzhak announced his intention to give that blessing to Esau and set them out to hunt up a feast that they could eat together. The idea being that he would taste from the goodness of creation. His heart would overflow with blessing. Meanwhile, who was watching this all unfold but Rivka, his wife? Now, as soon as Aesop grabbed his bow and disappeared into the field, she ran and grabbed Yaakov and told him exactly what he must do. Rivka's heroic quality is zrizut, alacrity. It's the alacrity that specifically comes from the ability to see the world as it truly is. She deserves her own day for a full exploration of this heroic quality. But for now, Rivka knew exactly what needed to happen. She knew the truth that Yaakov must receive this blessing. That no matter how things appeared to her blind husband, that Yaakov was truly the one chosen to live the next chapter of the divine story. And in service of that divine truth, she told him to deceive his father. She told him, go get your brother's clothes. Dress up. I'll give you food that you can bring to your father. You pose as Aesop in order to receive a blessing that Yitzhak doesn't intend to give you. Now, Yaakov does balk a bit, but not at the dishonesty of the means, right? But rather at the danger of what he's being asked to do. He says, Maybe my father's going to feel me, Aesop being a very hairy man and he being more smooth of skin. And I'll appear to him as a trickster, bringing upon myself a curse and not a blessing. That word metatea, trickster, opens up a whole new layer in our understanding of Yaakov and in how he represents derech ha'emet, the path of truth. Right? The trickster is a rich figure in world legend, one tightly bound up with a critical aspect of human psychology that we call the shadow. As psychoanalyst Carl Jung calls the trickster a collective shadow figure, and in legend usually a summation of all the inferior traits of character. But in personal psychology, the shadow is more. It's basically everything of myself that exists outside of the light of consciousness, outside of my true awareness of self. It can be the darkness of self-judgment. I should be this. I should be that. I should be a better father rather than saying, well, I'm a good man in these ways and I can do better. It's the base instincts that we bury deep, the dark desires and perhaps evil emotions 
that we don't want to see and therefore repress, suppress, and often find their outlet unseen. It's the willful blindness to the flaws that I have, but will not see. But the shadow isn't all dark. Because in that shadow also lies all the good and true parts myself which are not yet. In essence, the shadow is the unconscious self. Everything we are not yet, everything we refuse to be, or the things that we really are and believe that we're not. And as such, it's the field for growth. It's the face of self that opens up our path on the way to truth. And it can be the dark well of failure. The shadow and the engagement with shadow marks Derech Hemet, the way to true self. So here's Yaakov, about to deceive his father in order to disinherit his brother, guided by his mother, who is certain of the truth because she has a prophecy. She heard from God, the older shall serve the younger, no matter what the surface circumstances may seem to say. And so Yaakov swallows his fear, hides behind the dark of his father's blindness and the light of his mother's certainty, and takes the blessing which was ultimately meant for him. But there's a long path ahead for Yaakov before he can become the person he needs to be in order to truly receive that blessing, in order that it become his in truth. Okay, so Yaakov receives the blessing, one which his life story and history will ultimately prove to be truly his, but the next phase of his life is defined by the struggle to become the person who deserves what he's taken. Having promised Yaakov that everything's going to be okay, just listen to me, son, Rivka now says, well, truth is your brother's pretty angry, he's going to kill you, you better get out of town. And by the way, get married already, will you? Go to my brother, Lavan. he lives up there in Haran. You'll be safe there. And there he is, launched out onto Der Ha'emet the path of becoming true to self, which, of course, as an organic process, takes place in the world. Emet mi'aretz titzmach, right? The truth comes up from the land. It's never detached from the need to make our way in the real world. Yaakov's going to get married. He's going to raise children. He will herd many flocks. He's not going to find the truth by meditating on a mountaintop, not even the truth of himself. However, before he gets to Haran to build that real life, he does have an encounter on a mountain. One that not only opens up a new horizon for him, but provides a defining symbol of Jewish existence and of Emet itself. So here he is, Yaakov's on the run. He's broke, he's hungry, tired. So when the sun goes down, he goes to sleep. And because he sleeps, he can dream. You know, it's worth noting that Yaakov is the first person that the Torah explicitly tells us went to sleep, right? That's because he's able, despite all the fears and all the needs for his defense and moving forward in life, to let go and let God, as we said, right? And because he lets go of his need to control and drifts off to sleep, he can dream, he can enter into a world which is larger than what his abilities would define. And dreams will play a crucial role in Yaakov's whole story, as they will in that of his son Yosef. This dream is actually a vision. It says, And he dreamed, right? And behold, there was a ladder planted firmly on the earth. And its head reached up into the heavens. And the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending upon it. Sulam Yaakov. Jacob's ladder. 
It's a symbol whose meaning needs to be unpacked over the course of a lifetime. But for our story, actually, it's quite simple. The path of the Met involves connecting heaven and earth. It's all about perfecting lived experience, making it true to the ideal, lifting up earth to heaven while remaining firmly planted on the ground. It's also about engaging our infinite ideals, being so passionately committed to that which lies above us that we can embody it in our own life, bringing heaven down to earth. And the angels, those elements of true will, are always going up and down. This is an unending process of being true to heaven and living a true earthly life. So Yaakov has this vision and he awakes. Now the awesomeness of what he's seen, the horizon of possible self that has just opened up and the divine promises which he has heard, shake him to his core. Manora, Makoma said, how awesome is this place he sees? It's the gate of heaven. But you know, even when you're sitting by the gate of heaven, life doesn't stop. This is only one encounter on the path that he must take, no matter how profound. And so Yaakov vows to return and to live up to what he's seen in her, to make a relationship with the God whose voice he has encountered, should he survive the path of truth which lies ahead. And he sets out for Haran. Yaakov's whole life story is an articulation of this path of Emmet. And I encourage you to dive deeply into the many chapters of text and use this idea of the path of truth as a frame for understanding because I can't tell it to you all. Right now, instead, what I want to do is touch on what I see to be Yaakov's true heroic moment. His struggle with shadow, the moment that transforms him, and see what it might teach us about our own path of truth. When the prophet Micah said, Titen emet Yaakov, right? You give truth to Yaakov didn't mean the truth was an object that someone could possess. It meant that the truth became the given of Yaakov's life and that he now was dedicated to an unending process of revealing it within himself and within the world, which means he's really committed and defined by his unending struggle with his shadow. We see this in his external conflict with Esau, who is, after all, his evil twin, and through his internal battle to become true self. He starts out as Yaakov, right? Not just named, as I said, for the heel of his brother that he clutched while entering the world, but also for his nature as a trickster. You know, when Esau discovers that Yaakov has taken his blessing, he cries out, is it for this reason that he was named Yaakov? He has deceived me twice. He's done an end run around me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing the deceiver. But he's not just Yaakov. He's also going to be Yisrael, the one who struggles with God and man. Also, Yashar El means straight to God, no longer taking that winding path of deception, but going straight along the path of truth toward his destination. And the transformation from Yaakov to Yisrael is actually our heroic moment. It comes on the heels of his return home. It had to be said, right? After two decades away, struggling with his own shadow in the form of Levan, boss and father-in-law, who deceives him continually, repeatedly denying him the fruits of his labor, what he deserves in the world, should sound familiar. Shadows are often about projection. Yaakov then receives another dream. It's a message this time. Get up and go back to the land of Israel. 
Considering the circumstances under which he left, you can imagine that the return journey was marked by quite a bit of trepidation. Indeed, as he approaches the border, Yaakov sends out scouts who bring back word. Oh yeah, yeah, you're almost there and your brother Esau is coming, escorted by 400 men. It's a bit over the top for a simple honor guard, but not too much for a military expedition whose purpose was to wipe out a hated rival. So, filled with fear, Yaakov does what he can to prepare. First, he prays to God, who told him to return, and promised that he would be safe. Then, practical man that he is, he sends the gifts ahead to appease his angry brother. And then, in a last desperate attempt at survival, he splits his camp in two, hoping against hope that if one half is destroyed, perhaps the other will survive. And in this process of dividing the camps all night long, he's left alone in a moment, and he has another encounter. But the text says, Yaakov was left there alone, and a man struggled with him until the rising dawn. Now, who was this man? And what exactly was the struggle? It's left deeply unclear in the text. All we know is that the fight is a desperate one. No one seems to be able to prevail until Yaakov's mystery opponent, alarmed by the approaching light, uses some power to dislocate Yaakov's hip. And yet, Yaakov is still victorious enough that he can demand a blessing. And what's the blessing he gets? He gets a question. What's your name? Says the man. Who are you? Can you see yourself? He says, I'm Yaakov, the deceiver. And the man says, no, no, no. Your name isn't Yaakov anymore. Now it's Yisrael, straight to God, because you've striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. You've transformed through this encounter with your more true self. Now, it's a cryptic exchange, to say the least. The sages teach that Yaakov's mystery opponent was actually Esau's guardian angel, that this is his struggle with the external shadow, that other self that he needs to overcome in order to be who he can be, no longer deceiving his opponents, but rather beating them in an honest fight. There's also a tradition that says that this was Yaakov's own evil inclination, his shadow self that has emerged in his night struggle. Was it a dream? In order to force him to confront everything which he is not yet, to leave the deception behind and to become a new man, more true to himself and therefore more able to act truly in the world. Well, come dawn, though he's limping, Yaakov Yisrael goes to meet his brother face to face and, spoiler, they depart in peace. And truth is, Yaakov is going to live a long, rich life with many inner and outer struggles yet to come. Because of course, the derech emet, that path of truth, is an un ending process. Remember, Aleph, Mem, Taf, right? Beginning, middle, and end. In fact, our sages say that Yaakov Avinu lo mate, that Yaakov never dies. Yisrael, his ideal self, is buried in the cave of the Machpelah with the other forefathers and foremothers. But Yaakov? No, no, no. He's always on the way. Yaakov also happens to be the only person in the Bible whose name gets changed, but it doesn't seem to stick. Even on his very deathbed, the end of his story, our hero is called both Yaakov and Yisrael. This is because he is the archetype of Emmet. 
Yaakov points the way toward the path of truth. He gave us the symbol of that ladder connecting heaven and earth, bridging what is and what ought be, right? And that means that Yaakov's shadow is never left behind. He's always engaging and integrating that darker side of self, that which lies outside the light of consciousness. In generations to come, the struggle between Yaakov and Esau will figure prominently both in the Bible and in the rabbinic mind. I might call it the destructive conflict with shadow. It's what happens when you externalize and deny that this is really part of you and attempt to destroy all the things that you aren't yet because the shadow can't be denied. Only engaged and perhaps integrated. As Jung says, everything that man should and yet cannot be or do, be it in a positive or negative sense, lives on as a mythical figure and anticipation alongside his consciousness. You can't ever get rid of the shadow. And the tension between Yaakov and Yisrael as an internal dynamic lives on as well. It's a life-giving struggle. He's the one that integrates his not-yet-self, his shadow, into the light. He's the bridge between the reality of what is and the vision of the self which is not yet. I might say that Yaakov is every man, while Yisrael is the ideal. If you've never done it, read through the stories of Yaakov and substitute your own name everywhere it says Yaakov you might find it quite revealing. Because Yaakov sets out on the Derech Emet, and he learns that his destination isn't to arrive at the truth, but to keep traveling the path until he becomes true to self, and through so doing, bring greater truth into the world by being Yisrael. And just as the sages associate redemption, which we haven't yet reached, let it be soon, let it be now, with the reconciliation between Yaakov and Esau, so too, even on his deathbed, he's still Yaakov and Yisrael, teaching us that the path of truth is a never-ending struggle, a heroic journey toward the infinite. I just want to add, call it an epilogue. You know, there's three facets of truth. I didn't say it this way yet. One is the factual, right? Did things happen or no? Another is conceptual. A book might be on the fiction shelf, but... It can still teach me truth of life. The other is the transformative. I know something's true when after an encounter with it, I'm never the same. So take, for instance, the holy Baal Shem Tov, one of the great characters who embodies the path of truth and transformation in the Jewish story. Now, if you ask me for the facts, I'll tell you, he was born around the turn of the 18th century, right there in the kingdom of Poland, his parents died at age five. He became this, that, that. Those are all true. Conceptually speaking, well, he began a revolution. He was the one who brought perhaps the last stage of the unification between the Ohot and the Kalim, the lights and the vessels, between the conceived, that which is given, and that which we have to receive. He was the beginning of a romantic movement within Jewish history. But are the stories of the Baal Shem Tov true? Well, try this one on. A Hasid comes to the Baal Shem Tov one day and says, listen, I've been a good student to my master. I've learned. I've prayed. I've fasted. I've done everything I want to see. Elijah the prophet. Eliyahu Navi. It's a very high level of revelation. The Baal Shem Tov says, okay, this is what you need to do. Go load up a wagon, wine, bread, meat, everything you need for Shabbat. 
right? And tomorrow, Friday, Arab Shabbat, I want you to drive out of town. Go all the way down the road to get to the river. Go over the river. You'll see a path there on the right. Turn down the path. You'll find another path that winds its way through the wood. At the end of that path, you'll find a cottage. Stay there for Shabbat and you'll see Eliyahu. This is amazing. He does exactly what his Rebbe told him to do. He goes, buys meat, wine, bread, everything for Shabbat. Loads it up into the wagon. Arab Shabbat heads out, out of the town, over the river, through the woods, down the path. Till he comes to a broken down cottage. The windows don't even have glass. The chimney has maybe a strand of soap. One corner of the roof is falling in. And as he approaches, he hears crying and screaming and children. knocks on the door. A woman opens the door. Clearly a widow. Looking quite downtrodden. She says, yes. She says, I've come to save for Shabbat. She says, what? You're crazy. I can't feed my own children. How am I supposed to feed you for Shabbat? She says, no, 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 please. See the wagon. I have everything we need. Please. It's only an hour before sunset. You can't drive a Jew away before Shabbat. She says, okay, I suppose. Come on in. So he comes in. They prepare for Shabbat. First meal. No Eliyahu. It's fine. It's the first meal they eat. They drink. They're merry. Next morning, he wakes up, he prays, and he comes to the second meal, he makes Kiddush, the sanctification of the day, and no Eliyahu. It's okay. He was pretty sure. Anyway, the third holy meal. That's when Elijah the prophet will come, and nothing. Shabbat ends. He makes Abdallah, the dividing prayers, loads back the remainders in the wagon, heads back into town. Next morning, he shows up at Baal Shem Tov's house and says, Holy Rebbe, what happened? Tells him the whole story. Baal Shem Tov listens, strokes his beard, he nods, he says, Okay, I'll tell you what to do. Next week is Pesach. It's Passover. I want you to do the same thing. Load up a wagon. This time, of course, with matzah, not bread, meat, wine, everything you need for the Seder, for the whole festival. And then go back out of town, down the road, over the bridge, into the woods, down the path. There, there you'll meet Eliyahu. Chassid the good chassid. He listens to his rabbi. End of the week, buys everything he needs, loads up in the wagon, over the river, through the woods, down the path, comes to the cottage. He sees at this point there's not even smoke rising from the window. The cries, he can hear them well back into the woods, just as he's about to knock and he hears, Ima, Ima, what are we going to eat for Pesach? She says, children, don't worry, it'll be okay. Well, don't worry, it'll be okay. We have nothing. It's almost Pesach. She says, children, children, didn't God send us Elijah the prophet last Shabbat? Now, is that story true? I'm not going to ask about the facts. I leave it to you to understand the concept. But the truth of that story lies in whether you let it transform you. If you hear that story and you become someone else after hearing it, then you will make it true. Well, that's the truth, or at least all of it that I can say right now. And before I finish off, I want to let you know, you can find supplementary videos, source sheets, all kinds of interesting things at jewishheroism.com go there check it out and by the way while you're there in the upper right hand corner you see a button says donate if you want to make this project go a little further you can put your dollars toward a tax-free donation there i also need your feedback robmikefoyer at gmail.com or find me on facebook robmikefoyer we're at the early stages of what is going to be an awesome project i want to get your thoughts in there now i want to thank all the folks out there who helped make this happen i want to thank you for listening i'm rob mike foyer and this is the jewish heroism project